Last week we began uh, this four-week series in 2 Timothy that we are calling Fan into Flame. And uh, in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 6, um, Paul, writing to Timothy, uh, gives us this, this theme verse. He says, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And this idea of fanning into flame comes from this, uh, this verse where Paul, like I said, is writing to Timothy. Uh, but he's doing so while imprisoned in Rome and awaiting trial. Uh, for which he knows that he will likely be sentenced to death. And so he writes this letter to Timothy, who is uh, his uh, mentee, who is his ministering to this church in Ephesus. And in chapter 1, verse 6, and, and really throughout this whole letter, we see Paul's encouragement to, to Timothy and to us to stay strong, to not grow weary, to, to remember the giftedness that God has given us to accomplish his kingdom work. And to grow that giftedness through God's power and grace and purpose for our lives. This letter also serves another purpose for Paul. Knowing that he is awaiting trial, like is it likely death, these are the last recorded words we have uh, from Paul. This is the last letter that he will write that is in the New Testament. He might have written others to, to different friends or whatever, but as far as canonical scripture, this is the last words we have of Paul. And so I can't help but imagine that as Paul is writing these words, knowing that his end is near, and his earthly end is near, uh, he chooses these words, I think, with great care, with, with great prayer and deliberation. I imagine Paul sitting down and saying, if I have one last chance to speak hope and truth and life and encouragement into Timothy, what will I say? And so he writes these final encouragements and challenges that he will give to Timothy. And, and we get to kind of listen in on that conversation. We get the benefit uh, of also being encouraged and challenged through his words. This morning, as Paul challenges us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, it's kind of a, a choose-your-own-adventure, if you will. Some of you will be familiar with those books uh, years ago that were really popular where you kind of are reading and I just die. Okay, you're reading and you, and you get to, you know, page 13. It says, if you want to see this happen, you turn to page 20. If you want to see this happen, keep reading on page 14. And all throughout the book, you kind of get to choose your own adventure. And as Paul is writing to Timothy, he lays before him like, uh, likewise a choice. I've entitled the message today, We All Have a Choice to Make. You know, it, it's true, you know, just in life, every day is full of choices that we make. Some of them are, are mundane, and, you know, what will we wear when we get up, what will we have for breakfast, and others change the very course of our lives. You know, who will I marry? You know, wh- how many children will we have? Will we have children? What, what career path will I follow? Some choices, you know, f- follow this and change the very course of our lives. But all of those kinds of decisions pale in comparison to uh, the choice that Chandler, my son, had to make uh, the first time that he learned that you could trade in your book at Chick-fil-A from your kid's meal for an ice cream cone. And, and I remember the first time he did this because Chandler loves books. I mean, for me, it's like no-brainer. Books or ice cream. You always go with ice cream, but he's a weird kid, probably takes after his mother. Uh, but he, he, I remember this choice because we told him, you, you can take this book up to the register and you can give it to them and they will give you ice cream. And I said, so buddy, do you want a book or do you want ice cream? I want both. I said, no, 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 it's a, it's a, you want ice cream or a book? You can take this up there. Okay, okay, I will have both. I'm like, no, that's not how this works. And so he eventually goes up and he decides he wants ice cream and he, he gives her the book and then he eats his ice cream cone and says, hey, I'm going to go ask that lady if I can have my book back. I'm like, no, that's not, okay, that's just, you know, not how this works. 
But, but we all have choices to make. And sometimes those choices are difficult. Maybe not in, in, in you know, common sense. We know which one we want to take. We know which decision we want to make. But sometimes it's easier to say, uh, to make a decision than it is to carry it out and see that to completion. And so this morning as Paul lays out these choices for us, there's an obvious one to pick. But sometimes in practice it's a little difficult to do so. Uh, This outline I've I've got this morning is not original to me. Uh, It's from a pastor in California named Greg Ma as he has outlined these choices for us and I have fleshed them out for us. But I wanted to look at these choices that are available to each each of us when it comes to engaging with our faith and fanning that faith into flame. So the first choice that we have as Paul lays before us, he says you can be a straight teacher or a stray teacher. You can be a straight teacher or a stray teacher. Verse 14, he says to Timothy and to us, keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Paul writes this passage as an encouragement of of how to deal with teachers who are leading people away from the truth of God, away from God's word. They're quarreling about it, they're, they're distorting it, they're handling it incorrectly, and in the midst of all of it, we are encouraged in our work to remember to be these truth bearers. I had a college professor uh, that would say, when, you know, when you're preaching a, a sermon or, or, or doing a, a lesson, it's best if your Greek study should be like your underwear. You know, nobody wants to see it, but it's really nice to know it's there. Uh, but every now and then, this Greek word in a text, it comes out so strongly that you just, you just have to, to share it. And so again, in encouraging Timothy we, to hold firmly to this truth, Paul gives us a word. He says, do, yourself, do your best to present yourself as one approved who correctly handles the word of truth. The phrase correctly handles is actually just one work in Greek. It's orthotomeo. Uh, which means probably nothing to you except it means to cut straight or to hold a straight course. You might hear in that the word ortho as an orthodontist who makes your teeth straight. This word is, is one used in making a road. I think of heading south uh, from Joplin into Arkansas, and you might, if you've ever been that way, see the, the rock hills kind of lining the interstate, and it's just sheer faces because the interstate has cut straight through those hills. It doesn't swerve around, it doesn't go over, they just go right through. And that's the kind of word that Paul is using when it comes to handling the word of God. He says to correctly handle the word, doesn't, doesn't, you don't swerve with it, you don't go to the right or the left, it cuts straight. And so Paul says to be a straight teacher, to be one who correctly handles the word of God, is to stay on the straight path of truth. But to stay straight on the path of truth has become increasingly difficult in our world. We live in a world that often repeats those same words that Satan whispered to Eve in the garden at the very beginning, when he said, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden?" He says to us, you know, did God really say, you know, one man and and one woman for life? Did God really say holiness is more important than happiness? Did God really say that he even loves you? And and the world whispers into our ears, Satan whispers into our ears these lies and make it increasingly difficult to stay straight with the word of God. 
Timothy also dealt with these kind of stray teachings too. This, this, these lies, these, uh, these compromises are not new to our world. Verse 16, Paul says, Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have, who have departed from the truth. They say the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed within this inscription. The Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Paul speaks of these two men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved, who have departed from the truth. But the substance of their departure seems an odd one to us. I mean, there's these two guys who are teaching that uh, when the resurrection, not Jesus' resurrection, but the resurrection that, we'll, that we will experience when Jesus returns, had already taken place. And again, this seems like a weird you know, truth of Scripture to take issue with. Of, of all the things to want to compromise in God's Word, that's an odd one to focus on. I mean, it seems like you could easily refute it, walk to the grave of the nearest Christian, say, nope, they're, they're still here, you know, it didn't happen. But to their, to their Greek culture, now the teaching of the resurrection would not have been an appealing one. Greek philosophers taught that, that flesh was evil, and our goal in life was to escape it through death. And so the, the resurrection, this teaching that we would be given a new body, new flesh, would, would not have been appealing to them. And so there are these teachers who had been teaching that the resurrection that Jesus spoke of is more of a spiritual thing. That when we become a Christian in our conversion, when we pass from you know, our old way of life into our new way of life, that is kind of a resurrection, so to speak. That we are raised to new life. And Paul says, no, that's, it's departing from the Word of God. And it's destroying the faith of some. They're reducing the ultimate and eternal hope that we have in Christ to this touchy feel goodery rather than the ultimate promise of God. And so Paul says that the stray teaching is like gangrene. This disease that causes the skin and tissue of your body to begin to decompose while you're still alive. And sometimes the best way to deal with gangrene is amputation, to cut it off completely. And so Paul says you can be a straight teacher who correctly handles the word of truth, or you can be a straight teacher whose ultimate destination is separation from the body. I know some of you are, are probably thinking with this, well, I'm, I'm not a teacher. This, I, I don't, straight teacher, straight teacher, it doesn't apply to me. I don't teach Sunday school. I'm not a children's volunteer. I don't work with the youth. I'm certainly never going to preach. You know? So this warning about straight teaching versus straight teaching really doesn't apply to me. But each of us as Christians have a responsibility to stick unswervingly to the truth of Scripture. What does that look like? You might have heard the preacher illustration, uh, somewhere, you know, similar language, that uh, when it comes to counterfeit money, federal agents don't look uh, to spot counterfeit money by studying the counterfeits, but rather they study the genuine article, the genuine bill, until they master the look of the real thing. And then when they see fake money, they, they recognize it. This, this is an illustration that came out uh, years ago in the book Reckless Faith by John MacArthur. And, and sometimes when you hear these kinds of illustrations or stories, uh, as I do when I listen to other preachers, you probably think, is that really real though? I mean, that sounds really preachery and good, but is that actually how it happens? 
And there's actually a Christian blogger and pastor named Tim Challies who, who wanted to put this one to the test. He likewise had heard illustrations like this and thought, you know, is that really how it works? And so he's a, a minister in Canada, and so he went to the Bank of Canada, and after you know, going through all of the levels of bureaucracy that he needed to to sit down with a federal agent, he does so. And the first thing that he does is he sat down in this room with a real bill, and he's given four instructions. They instruct him to touch it, to tilt it, to look at it, and to look through it. They say to touch it, to feel, you know, this cotton paper that a bill is printed on is really hard to duplicate. And so a fake one will likely have this waxy feel to it or will not feel quite right. They say to to tilt it, to look at the, the holographic images in the bill to see if they shimmer and shine the right way. They say to, to look at the bill, to look at all of the fine print and the details and see all of the, the different things that are hidden and, and encompassed in this dollar. And finally, to look through it, to hold it up to the light, look for the images and the ribbons that are there. And after he gets really fully acquainted with the real bill and does all of this and just knows this bill inside and out, this lady comes in and puts a stack of different denominations in front of him, some real and some fake. And this is what he says about it. He says, I soon learned that identifying counterfeit currency is not a terribly difficult task. When a person knows what to look for, when he has been trained to examine the bill for particular identifying characteristics, identifying genuine from fraudulent can be done with great accuracy, even on the basis of only a small amount of training. I successfully identified each piece of counterfeit currency. The reason I bring this up is because someday the world is going to set in front of you a stack of falsehoods and lies. And if we haven't become deeply connected with the truth of Scripture, if we have not touched it and tilted it and looked at it and looked through it and, and become deeply and intimately connected with the truth of God's Word, then we will invariably buy into the lie. As Paul says, you have a choice. You can be a straight teacher or you can be a stray teacher. He continues in verse 20, and he says, you can be a useful instrument or you can be a useless instrument. You can be a useful instrument or you can be a useless instrument. Verse 20, he says, In a large house there are articles, not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the Master, and prepared to do any good work. Depending on whether we hold firm to truth. Whether or not we stay straight or we swerve will determine, Paul says, our usefulness. And he gives us this image of, of kind of household objects, special household objects versus common household objects. If he were speaking into our world today, he might say something like, in every house, there's your grandma's fine china. And then there are the paper plates. And there's not even the kind of paper plates that, you know, have those cool plastic webbing things that your parents used back in the 90s at a church picnic to really support the weight of it. These are just run-of-the-mill, normal paper plates. And he says, and the way you treat these two sets of, of dinnerware are completely different. I mean, your grandma's fine china you put in a china hutch, which is a special cabinet that's so special you can't even call it a cabinet. You have to give it a special name, china hutch. And you put it in there to be displayed and admired and you only use it at, at Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving and, and only certain special times of year because they've been set apart for something special. 
You know, compare that to a paper plate that you just lug out at a cookout or an informal party or just when you're not feeling like washing dishes. You know, one is displayed proudly and reverently and, and handled delicately. And the other is used to hold a greasy hamburger with your gum stuck to the side of it and, and then it's thrown in the trash without a second thought. A paper plate might be useful for a moment, but ultimately its purpose is short-lived and frivolous. You know, China, on the other hand, is passed down from generation to generation. And so Paul is in effect saying, do you want to be a paper plate or do you want to be fine China? Timothy is dealing with these people in Ephesus who are quarreling about words and, 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 and engaging in this godless chatter. In other words, they spend a lot of time talking about and arguing about their faith without living it out. They spend a lot of time seeking uh, the, the fads of the day without seeking the rich truths of the Bible. They're toying with the gospel. They're speculating about marginal ideas and issues that are ultimately unuseful. And so in this, Paul reminds us that if we want to be truly useful for God, if we want to be set aside for kingdom work, then it's going to take more than a casual faith. It's going to take more than speculating or dabbling with Scripture, but it will require us to delve deeply into His Word and to stand firm on its truth. What that means is that if your only interaction that you have with those pages between the leather is what I chew up and spit out every Sunday, then we're being paper plate Christians. We may be strong or even useful in a pinch, but we can never be strong and useful against the regular pressures of life without folding up and falling apart and being thrown out. And so Paul says you can be a useful instrument or you can be a useless instrument. Finally, the third thing he says is you can be a kind servant or a quarrelsome servant. You can be a kind servant or a quarrelsome servant. Verse 22 says, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. As Paul finishes uh, this encouragement to Timothy and, and wisely choosing and standing for the truth, he reminds us that our method is nearly as important as our message. There's a great harm that can be found in being a truth bearer if our main interest is yielding that truth as a club to beat other people with. How you handle the truth matters. Because invariably when you stand for truth, you're going to face opposition. We're going to face conflicts in our faith and in our lives. That is inevitable. And so Paul gives us this encouragement in how to deal with this. We often kind of take this verse and, and use it out of context. He tells Timothy, he tells us to, to flee the evil desires of youth. And often we look at that phrase and we put it in the context of lust. You know, we give it to youth group kids and we say, you know, run from lustful desires, flee from them. Just like Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife and, and fled from the house when she was trying to pull him into bed. You know, flee from lustful desires. 
And that's not a bad message, but it's not the message of this verse. For to flee the evil desires of youth, we see as Paul talking about being hot-headed and stubborn. And this having this desire to be quarrelsome and to mow over people to get where you want to be. I think this is illustrated really well in toddlers. Last week, Chandler got into a, a squabble with uh, one of his you know, little friends. And, and even when they were uh, in this, not in agreement with one another, you know, they both sat down and they said, now let's be reasonable about this. You know, we've reached an impasse and we could really use some mediation on how to solve this problem. Let's take 10 minutes and let's let cooler heads prevail. Of course not. That's not what toddlers do. They, they, they scream and they throw tantrums. And there was a, there was a he bit me and it wasn't a, I, I didn't bit him, I hit him. And you know, that's how toddlers work out their problems. Those are the youthful desires. These kinds of desires that we are encouraged to flee. This desire to lead us to want to win an argument rather than win someone for Jesus. And not to be, you know, this curmudgeon, but I think in a social media age, it's become easy for us to be very unkind to one another. It's become easy for us to sit behind a screen and impersonalize people while we seek to win arguments rather than demonstrate kindness. Paul says in verse 25, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. When we are kind rather than quarrelsome, and kindness opens people up to the truth in a way that they can respond positively. Ephesians 6.12 reminds us, Paul says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The person that you're arguing with is not the enemy. The person who has hurt you is not the enemy. The person who is far from God is not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. And when you lose sight of the enemy, you lose the battle. Jesus knew this. Jesus lived this. Romans 5.8 says, when, But God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still his enemies, while we were still leading a rebellion against God and shaking our weapons of revolt against him, God laid down his life so that we could live with him. And even in this process, as Jesus hang, hung on the cross, you know, bloodied from his beatings, bruised from being slugged in the face, despised and rejected, naked and humiliated, he said, Father, destroy them, for they are your enemies. No, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Because of our sin, we were captive to Satan's trap. And in this trap, God demonstrated his loving kindness that we might cease being his enemies and instead become his children. And so this morning, I want to encourage each of us to stand for truth. It's too important to lose sight of how God designed us to live by giving us his instructions in his word. But I also want to encourage you that in our stand for truth, let us never sacrifice people on the altar of truth. Let us never lose sight of how Jesus came full of grace and truth and died and three days later was raised from the dead to show us a better way.
We all have a choice to make. And those choices seem easy, but they are difficult. It is a challenge to live as God calls us to live. But through His Spirit within us, through Jesus' model before us, we can live as straight teachers rather than stray teachers. We can live as useful instruments rather than useless instruments. We can be kind servants rather than quarrelsome servants. And the choice to make is ultimately one choice, not three. It's a choice to choose Jesus. To choose His way of life. To choose to look more and more like Him every single day. And that's the heart of the invitation that we have at the end of every sermon. It's an invitation to choose Jesus. For some of you, that might be a choice that you're making for the very first time. Uh, a, a choice that you have not chosen to follow Him, that you've not chosen to model your life after Him. And so that uh, describes you this morning. I want to encourage you to choose Him today. As He has chosen you to be His follower from the foundations of the world, as He has put this plan in place to allow us to come to Him, to respond to Him in acceptance. For others of you, I know that much more likely is that you've chosen Jesus already, you've given your life over to Him, but that doesn't mean following Him and looking like Him is always easy. And so the encouragement and the challenge I want to offer you is to simply choose Jesus every day. To choose to intimately know Him, to be acquainted with Him, to know His Word, to know His Spirit, and to choose to look like Him and follow Him, as we all have this choice to make. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning, and we thank you that even in the midst of scheduling difficulties, technical difficulties, all the things that seem to want to distract us, that your word rings true, and we can worship you and know you because of what you've done for us. God, we thank you that you have challenged us and encouraged us with this letter of 2 Timothy that as Paul is writing these final words to his dear son in the faith, that you allow us to listen in on the conversation and glean truths about your word. And God, I pray that you would simply allow us to make the choices that you have called us to make, to cut straight with your truth, to hold unswervingly to the truth that we know is yours, to be useful for your kingdom because of our stand for truth, and ultimately to be kind to those who disagree with us, just as Jesus was kind to his enemies, kind to us, that while we were still sinners, he laid down his life, that we might have the hope of eternal life. God, we thank you for the ways that you love us and the truth that you have given us. And I pray that we would seek to live out that love and truth each and every day. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.